Hi, I'm Will Ross. And I'm Paige Smith. Devin is out today, so Paige and I are going to talk about the master of animation, Hayao Miyazaki, and how he uses storyboards, drawings done in advance of production used to plan what the final images will look like in sequence in a movie, instead of traditional written screenplays, and how that affects his films. Welcome to Film Formerly. We do spoil these films, but you'll be able to kind of tell we're about to beforehand. So, like, be prepared to skip ahead if you're worried about having these endings spoiled. Is Miyazaki your favorite director, or...? One of my faves, for sure. I've loved his work since I was a kid, so he's definitely got a special place in my heart. I thought a great technique that we could talk about in regards to Miyazaki is the way he, quote-unquote, writes his stories. Because... With him, he doesn't have any script he's working off of, no written words. He only works off storyboards, which is just drawings of what he wants the film to look like. And he also often hasn't finished his storyboards before they even go into production for the film. So yeah, it's pretty unique and uh, he's very involved in the process. So I thought it'd be really cool to look at that technique and how it influences his works, especially we were going to specifically talk about Nausicaa, Valley of the Wind and Spirited Away. What we're talking about here, I mean, let's set a sort of comparison and contrast. The sort of standard industry and even outside the industry method of preparing a film's story is that it's all written into a script beforehand. So every general action by a character, every word of every line of dialogue, the location of scenes, the order of scenes, all of that is put in a script beforehand and that's 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 the standard way to write a film but obviously there's like a lot of different ways to prepare your narrative i mean you can write in many different ways we we did an episode on writing for documentary the idea of how you structure before and after you actually film an event that you are not directly controlling how you structure a narrative around that there's improvisation most famously there's comedies with heavily improvised scenes but also mike lee will have his actors improvise for hours and hours and hours on end under a lot of different scenes and then he'll distill a script around that and then they'll go on set and there will still be a high amount of improvisation within the framework he sets and these are all things that can deserve their own episode i guess but in the case of miyazaki it's fairly unique in that the script is generated through imagery and production begins before all of the storyboards have been completed. Miyazaki's book's starting point was a collection of essays he's written. So he kind of explains how animations usually get made too, because there is a difference between live action films in general and animated films in how they go about their pre-production. Miyazaki would argue that the animator's primary work consists of drawing storyboards and creating that detailed plan for the overall film. That's what he thinks animators um, should be doing. He is a huge advocate for the animator being involved very, and by animator, he means like the animation director. He really advocates that they be very deeply involved in the detailed process of going about and deciding on every frame and movement as a storyboard would be depicting. So this is how Miyazaki describes it. An animator's work primarily consists of drawing storyboards and creating a detailed plan for the overall film. 
All the available ideas are sifted through to create a story, which in turn is concentrated into storyboards and given shape. Then the work is divided into a series of tasks and therein really begins the huge effort that eventually results in a finished film. Specifically, what we do is to split the story into a series of scenes, and then, while visualizing the setting, structure, movement, and speech of the various characters as drawings, we try to concentrate scenes so vivid and emotional that we will make the viewer's palms sweat from the drama or their sides split with laughter from the gigs. But in reality, animators rarely work on storyboards today. Or to be more precise, I should say we create almost no storyboards. Instead, we create, and please excuse my pronunciation, Iconti, or continuity sketches. And it is from this point on that the animator's work really begins. So he goes on to explain more about these continuity sketches and how they've come to replace storyboards in a lot of the field of animation. And he explains kind of the industry reasons for that in that feature films and TV shows as the primary modes of animation instead of shorts have led to more complexity in the animation style. So there is this need for this continuity detailed sketches, but also they have just replaced storyboards in the sense of it saves money. They don't need to spend that detailed extra time creating storyboards. They can just create these very rough sketches of like the movement and the continuity to make sure everything frames correctly and comes together looking like natural movement that has gone to replace the storyboard. So Hayao Mizuzaki is like a huge, he's hugely against this. When you read his writing, you can see that he really thinks the essence of making animated films, of being the director, of being the animator, is the storyboard process. He thinks that that is truly the point where you are taking the image from your brain and making it into art. I mean, Miyazaki's not completing all the storyboards for the film in advance of making the film though. No. He completes a certain number of storyboards and then production begins. And not only does he not have all of the other storyboards figured out, but he doesn't even know exactly what the narrative attached to them will be. Like much of his actual writing process is attached to the drawing process. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's really weird to me. There's this great documentary about Ghibli and mainly the behind the scenes work of Miyazaki. Right. The Kingdom of Dreams and Madness, the Mami Sonata film. Yeah, that one. Yeah. So it came out, what, like within 10 years, it came out the year... 2013. Yeah. yeah. Around when um, his most recent work, The Wind Rises, came out. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a behind the scenes look at Ghibli, the studio that Miyazaki founded and runs, and specifically what it was like making The Wind Rises. For a lot of his films, especially when they are completely a unique idea of his own um, and there's not like a novel he's adapting from, he has very much not knowing the ending of the movie. You know, he's said in the documentary, some of his staff say it's baffling. Some even give up trying to understand what the film's about. They're about midway through The Wind Rises and he says, I honestly don't know what kind of film we'll end up making. One of his staff says it's almost like the film writes itself and... Miyazaki agrees. He even explains, I've had staff tell me they have no idea what's going on in my films. When we made Spirited Away, even I didn't know. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's interesting with The Wind Rises because The Wind Rises is like largely based on the biography of a real person, right? Yeah. And that, that film's quite unique in that way because I think it's the only kind of biopic he's ever done. But yeah, it's really weird. And one thing I really liked is he kind of, in that, 
documentary, he almost kind of explains that films are like organisms and that they, they have their own life and their own breath and almost like they write themselves. That's how he goes on to explain it. It's, it's, uh, it's almost like he's just like watering the plant, if that makes sense. Right. A huge part of the reason I think that he bases so much of this kind of stuff off intuition is, you know, he greatly advocates that animators study, experience the world, research things that aren't animated movies. He really is like, go study airplanes, go study ecology. Like those are his interests, right? But like whatever your interests are, go study them. One time he was describing trying to get a group of young animators to draw an airplane moving and they all drew it. And he said they all looked like every airplane moving image they'd he'd ever seen because they were just basing that image off of images they had previously seen and not their own knowledge. So I think for him, it's almost like you got to study whatever your movies are going to end up being about and then kind of forget it all and just imagine. I think this brings up a distinction to be made, which is that the movie writing itself is, is a, is a good way of putting no doubt what it feels like, but He's also, in what you're describing, obviously saying that the movie doesn't actually write itself. It's drawn from your experiences. It's drawn from the intuitions that you learn throughout your life and your work about how story structure works and when is a good time for this to take a turn or for this character to be faced with a problem or to introduce a new character. And that's not something that can just be done. I mean, so many filmmakers, myself included, like it would be very, very hard for me to go into making a film without a pretty distinct ending, at least in mind. I mean, changing your film is something that happens all the time uh, to one degree or another, but it's pretty rare to go into your film without having your ending in mind. And you really have to have so much faith in your ability to generate compelling imagery and for the story to take interesting turns and to work out to some sort of cohesive structure in the end. Yeah, I find it baffling the way he works because I think the idea of storyboarding and thinking through his ideas that way and basing things off this intuition and imagery, you know, it makes sense. And it and it's not like he draws like the end of the movie on the storyboards and then it's in stone, you know, like maybe he draws it and he's like, that's not right. And, you know, he'll keep thinking about it for a week and then he'll draw a new version. But the thing is, like, it's one thing to be doing that, you know, in its own stage. But in the meanwhile, the clock is ticking and his animators are, you know, maybe halfway through the movie. And they're like, we're coming up on the scenes we need to animate next. Like, when are you going to finish the ending? Like that, that's the that's the part that's really weird. And I think that that purely just comes out of like an economic need to yeah. you know I, th I i think if he could just storyboard the whole film this is just a guess but i i think if he could just storyboard the whole film and figure out everything first i'm sure that's what he would do but it's mm -hmm. just a matter of i think the films would take forever if that's how they went and maybe <laughs> maybe he needs that push you know maybe the producers know he needs you know people to start working so that he has to figure out the ending but you know it is i mean his, his newest film has already been in production for like four years and it's suspected to take like at least a few more years like easily yeah. his slowest production so maybe like maybe that's part of what's happening like maybe, maybe he completed although we also know that the animation itself is just taking forever yeah i you were telling me there's going to be like a higher frame rate than usual yeah which he has like the wind rises has for japanese animated 
cinema has a very high frame rate so that will be really interesting to see yeah one thing i mean i guess we're kind of going off this basis that everyone understands this but one thing we should clarify is that all of uh, miyazaki's films are hand-drawn there's like very very small amounts of digital like digital in the sense of like 3d made in a computer animation like he uses like a small amount of that were very specific shots but almost everything backgrounds characters everything is hand-drawn so it takes an enormous amount of time. That confidence of being able to generate as many images as you will need to like create an interesting story as you're producing the film itself and just being able to have faith in that. It, Miyazaki has actually laid out in starting point, he mentions this and he says, draw many pictures, as many as you can, Eventually, a world is created. To create one world means to discard other inconsistent or clashing worlds. If something is very important to you, you can keep it carefully stored in your heart for use at another time. Those who have experienced an outpouring of an amazing number of pictures from inside themselves can feel it. They feel that the fragment of a picture they envisioned, the other trunk of a story that was thrown out while piecing together a narrative, the memory of pining for a girl, the knowledge about a subject gained as they delved deeply into a hobby— all of these play a role and become entwined into one thick strand. The scattered material within you has found its direction and started to flow. And I think what he's getting at there is that if you draw pictures all the time in response to things that happen to you in your life, then the idea of drawing another picture that encapsulates something you're feeling or an idea you had and having it flow together will just come naturally. Yeah, and I mean, what he really advocates for is that space in pre-production before storyboards, before any sort of like distinct idea where he's just showing people those pictures and being like, this is like a potential world or like parts of this are a potential world and parts of this are potential characters in this world. So I think um, that stage is very important to him, it seems. So maybe maybe that's what gives that root, that foundation. It's hard to know exactly why it works for Miyazaki. And I don't know how many other directors even try it. I, I think the thing, part of the problem is that, like, how many directors have the clout that they would be allowed to try it? And if they tried it once and screwed up, they would never be allowed to try it again because animated movies are just so expensive. Yeah, that's what I was about to say. It is important to remember that, like he was only able to do this later in his career as well, mm. right? Like he started off with TV. Future Boy Conan. Yeah, that one. He directed a bunch of episodes of Lupin the Third. Yeah. yeah. The Lupin the Third movie. Yeah. Castle of Cagliostro. Yeah. Which is like, again, has source material he's working off of. The first feature film that he was able to have his own original idea, I believe, was Nausicaa, Valley of yeah. the Wind. And with that, he actually was basing it off of the manga, like the comic book he'd written. In a way, it's kind of like he had done his own storyboarding process for it. I mean, the manga and the film narratively differ in a lot of ways, but... But he knew the ending, you know what I mean? Like he knew what, what they were going to, but then compared mm -hmm. to something like Spirited Away, which was kind of a midpoint, like mid midway in his career, slash like maybe mid to late in his career he had no idea what the ending was going to be. So that came with being financially successful. Yeah. I mean, Totoro, I think he didn't know exactly what the ending would be for that film either. Yeah, Totoro, I think, yeah. is the first kind of movie that it, he really goes in and, is, and um, talks about that idea of there just being like an image stuck in his head. And he said for Totoro, there was two specific images. There's the one 
of um, a, a, a little bit of an older child, female child at a bus stop with like a big creature beside her waiting for her parents to come home, which is like kind of that iconic shot from Totoro now. And the moment of like a younger girl seeing a small creature that was semi-transparent, which is another moment um, with May from the film that is pretty iconic as well, where she's like seeing the Totoros for the first time. And he said he had those two images and he didn't even know that they went together. Like they were just two separate things and he didn't, he couldn't piece together how they would come together as a story or anything. He had those in his head for 10 years, he said, before he actually figured out how to make Totoro. So maybe he didn't know the ending, but he, uh, he thought about it for a while. <laughs> yeah. In the case of Nausicaa, he sort of got to make a film on his own terms. And he already kind of had the manga set up. And it was the first film. And the first film happened to be a huge success. But you can imagine a world where Nausicaa tanks at the box office. Studio Ghibli doesn't happen or happens, but in a different form than we know. And one of the consequences of that is that no producer will ever let Miyazaki make a film without a finished script. Right. They're just like, oh, yeah, he's like, even if everything he does is successful after that point, there might be this element of like, oh, yeah, he does great work. But like, you have to keep him in line. But I mean, almost I think every film he's made has been a significant financial success. Spirited Away was like the highest grossing film in Japan until just a few years ago with your name. Like, yeah, it was like I think adjusted for inflation, it might still be the highest grossing ever. Might be. It was huge. Yeah. No, he. Um. He's huge. Yeah. <laughs> he, he, worldwide and in Japan specifically. I mean, there's so few animators who can like get that kind of clout with their first independent film, with their first film with full creative control. Mm-hmm. So there is a little bit of an easy for him to say element, I think, to some of this advice of like, here's how you should direct your films. And it's like, okay. Oh, yeah. Definitely you... take everything he says with a grain of salt. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can you find me a producer who will permit me to do that? <laughs> Yeah, he, he's pretty lucky. One quote I love that I think really explains and fits in with this idea of not typing out a script or like writing out a script, but instead working off of storyboards that, yeah, Miyazaki says, is um, the world isn't simple enough to explain in words. Part of the reason I, I love this is like, I feel like when he speaks and explains his filmmaking, I feel like that's how I work. Like actually me, myself as a filmmaker, I don't write scripts either, but my films are way less narratively based than... Um, Miyazaki's are like I don't really have lines in the same way so it it doesn't really make sense for me to write scripts in my brain but just that idea of the world isn't simple enough to explain in words it just rings true so much to me that you know he's really a visual guy he works he tries to imagine and express emotions through visuals so why would he write it down you know like it's like it doesn't what, what's the point of that you know like the, the so your me- crew knows what the hell they're gonna do <laughs> yeah well who cares just follow the blind leader yeah as long well as long <laughs> as you're micromanaging every single aspect of production then which i he guess does. it's fine which he does yeah <laughs> another thing just on a personal note is like i am dyslexic so i find it kind of difficult to communicate through language sometimes especially written language so I just love seeing filmmakers being able to work this way and find success and create these beautiful worlds in this new, this alternative mode of production. I, I don't know. I just think it's really great. So we, I guess we can talk now a little bit about what the outcome is. Yeah, I think that that's a really important thing we should talk about. Mm-hmm. 
So what's the outcome of this? <laughs> like, <laughs> well, what, how does this actually affect his films? Yeah, I I mean, I think I've been pretty rosy-cheeked about this whole thing. I, I really like that, you know, he can use this alternative mode of production, that it's, it's, a, it's cool, it's fun. And I don't know, I just think it's great. But there's, you know, the biggest thing is that often his endings aren't super strong. Some ones that really pop into mind is the ending of Howl's Moving Castle, I think is like quite weak. Honestly, parts of the ending of Spirited Away, I think is quite weak. The biggest reason why Spirited Away isn't in my top tier of Miyazaki is that the ending, there's a lot of things about the ending where it feels like, oh, this is all just coming together very neatly and tightly. And it feels very inorganic compared to the rest of the film, which is so free flowing. Spirited Away is like such a whirlwind of a movie. Like it has such a strong beginning. It sets up this dynamic of like the human world and the spiritual world. And it has a lot of great symbolism in it at the beginning, especially like Shinto symbolism. It's such a strong first ha- half, I think. Yeah. Uh, Incredible first half. It's amazing, Blows right? Blows me away every time. Yeah. yeah. But it, it really feels like it loses itself at a certain point. And I can't, I don't, I, I don't know if I can like pinpoint, but like, I, I love the train stuff, for example, like when she leaves the bathhouse and the stuff with no face where he becomes like giant and then she takes the train and it's like this train on this endless sea of water. Like I, that's very effective somehow. But once she arrives, she's at Yubaba's sister's like twin, whatever, like the lady she calls grandma's place. Zeniba? Yeah, yeah. Zeniba's place. That's, I don't know, something, once it gets to there, it feels like the film really like starts to like, the engine is puttering, they, it's struggling. All right, we got to wrap this thing up. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it feels like, you know, she's like, kind of like, I need to go back and find Haku. He might be dying. Opens the door. Oh, Haku's there. Like, yes. <laughs> yeah. do you know what I mean? Like, it's like, it, it just feels like. There's a scene from Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans. And anyone who has seen <laughs> Bad Lieutenant, Port of Call, New Orleans will know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't seen it, you should watch that movie because there's a lot of interesting stuff in it. It really is jarring with his films because I really feel like his films have this, like the, the good parts of his films have this amazing, like organic quality to them where they just feel like, He's so good at world building. Like you just completely get sold in the world so quickly. Mm -hmm. I really think a big part of talking about the ending is Chihiro, the lead character's arc. It's a protagonist movie in a lot of ways. Like we're always with her. We don't see things from any other perspective ever. And there is a clear shift that happens throughout the film where she starts off as like a child who's very much kind of almost petulant at the beginning, mm-hmm. um, not very mature, yeah. very much doesn't know about any of kind of this history of spirituality and Shintoism in Japanese culture, you know. And then she grows up throughout the movie. You definitely feel like she gains maturity. She gains a sense of hard work. She comes to like internalize this understanding of spirituality. And I like that. And I, I do feel like that's, earned yeah oh that works so she comes back from zeniba's place with haku he like flies her back she remembers haku's name i don't know okay i think it's a little i don't know whatever she remembers (laughs) haku's name but the scene that i really don't like so she comes back she's all stoic and brave i think that's great but then you know she gets there and there's just this new challenge just so that there's like a final challenge, I guess, where Yubaba is like, you have to guess which of these pigs is your parents. And then she just 
knows somehow that none of them are her parents and she's just like none of these are my parents which is like a cool idea but in the same in the sense of it's like it's not earned at all like it's how not does coming she... from anywhere no it has yeah. nothing to do with the themes of maturity of hard work of understanding spirituality on a different level it's just like oh i know none of these are my parents the, the film is not about her getting to know her parents better it's not about her like deeply understanding them or something yeah you, you know? I, every time i think like is there some like symbolism or some cultural context that i'm missing but i've never found any yeah no. it's the weakest part of the whole film which is a shame because it is set up as the climax of the entire film but i do think after that i do like the ending of her going back oh yeah and, and like there's dust all over the car yes. which is like oh we how the dust get all over the car and she's like and like there's plants real. kind of overgrowing around the car yeah and and also even just like they repeat like near the beginning of the film you know the car arrives at the end of this road and then they walk through the tunnel yeah and then they that's kind of like the symbol of like through the tunnel once you exit you're in the spiritual realm yes they they really they repeat the exact same shots yes of the original shots from the tunnel i think yeah. that's really effective yeah totally and that that so naturally lends itself to a nice effective bookend for yeah the so yeah. it, it feels like it's not it's not the end per se like the very end and i can see him having that idea from the beginning of like and then she'll yeah. go back you yep. know what i mean like yep. I, I can totally understand that but i think he didn't know how to end he didn't know how to resolve the the plot threads of the film yeah because it's like yeah neither me or will are japanese or know anything really about shintoism but i did a little bit of reading about some of the symbolism of shintoism in spirited away specifically and yeah i didn't read anything about the ending that kind of made that more clear yeah miyazaki has also some incredible endings like you said a lot of his endings are like kind of the weaker part but like kiki's delivery services ending is amazing Kiki's Delivery Service is where the movie goes from like a really good animated film to like a, a classic animation. The big thing that happens at the end of Kiki, not plot wise, but emotionally, is that the cat who she's been able to talk to for the whole movie, she can no longer understand the cat and the cat can no longer understand her and the cat no longer talks and the cat goes off with another cat to have a romance. Yeah, basically she is able to talk to him and kiki is a, a witch like she's magical right so she's able to talk to him and then at a certain point she loses her powers and that's like a big part of the movie is that like oh no like i'm losing my powers and that's around the time that she is no longer able to talk to her pet cat like that is the time and then you know the ending is she is able to gain her powers back she's able to save her friend but still can't talk to the cat and that is such a sad and beautiful way of expressing how your life changes when you're no longer a child <laughs> yeah growing up because that's what that movie's all about is like her finding independence and being able to take care of herself basically and and the you know the, the film i think a lot of especially young girls especially adolescent young girls relate and connect deeply with and and people you know now as adults are nostalgic for that is because it gets across that unique quality of melancholy of teenagehood as a girl and i think that ending is like a great capstone to that yeah and it's such a great argument in favor of a more do it as you go approach to storytelling in the documentary the kingdom of dream and madness is actually he one of his co-workers actually asked him like why doesn't the cat talk at the end of kiki like this kind of vibe of like we all wanted to know what the cat would have said, you know, and he 
it's very clear it was an instinct it you know it was he it was very instinctual that the cat wouldn't talk i don't because i don't think he thinks in that exact way he doesn't think in payoffs I, I don't think he's like working off of that traditional like hollywood script sort of formatting right, right. and it's not a linguistic process in his head too yes. where, where for example i like really understand things by verbalizing them yeah exactly. hence podcast <laughs> but, but that's that's just not how miyazaki works through his understanding of the world yeah, and he even says like, "What? What was the cat gonna say that we already didn't know?" <laughs> like, like he one line he proposed, everything is okay, kids, even when your cat can't talk. <laughs> like he said, I think one of the lines he was like, "What did you want the cat to be like? You got to stop talking to me, kid, or something like that." <laughs> I'm putting it more funny than he right. said, but something like that. Like the the proposed lines he said was like, "See, none of these would have worked." So of course I didn't have yeah. like nothing is better than the cat being silent. But yeah, I, Kiki is a great example, I think, of a movie where that process serves it really well. Yeah, I mean, there is like Makoto Shinkai is the obvious guy where he's now people made, keep comparing them. Yeah, yeah, like, and I, I don't think I, other than their financial success, I actually I don't understand the like new Miyazaki no it's like completely different and he works completely differently like super fascinating as well no we have to do an episode on him too yeah I'd be I'd be really happy to do an episode talking about Shinkai's working methods because he's fascinating Will knows lots about him my hot take about Makoto Shinkai is that he has a better understanding of light than possibly any animation director ever well and you know what's so funny so like talking about Miyazaki and how he's like such a huge advocate for the director being deeply involved in every stage like he even is like the director just in animation especially anime in Japan this is just not really a thing apparently like he's like the director should be deeply involved in the sound design process and like deciding which sounds and you know like just those uh, you know and like we were saying like all the visuals you know he's very very particular but Makoto Shinkai, he doesn't draw his own movies at all. Like, Himazaki, like, actually sometimes does the animation himself. Like, Makoto Shinkai, you know, that that's why it's like, they're they're completely different. You just, he's just, just yeah, made a lot of at, money. I'm pulling up right now, we'll put this in the show notes, I'm pulling up some of his sketches for the opening sequence of Your Name. And oh, it's, okay, he can draw. Yes, but it's very obvious that it's like... Very different from the final piece. Yeah, it is not in the same art style. It's, you know... Yeah, he, he can he can absolutely draw. I mean, to me, I, the big thing that distinguishes Shinkai's films and like different art directors bring different styles. So, like if you just look at his different films, it'd be like, oh, this looks like a totally different drawing style. Yes. And it's because he's got different animation directors and character designers. Yeah, like he has like an animation director. That's the key difference. Like, yeah, I don't think Miyazaki has like an animation director in the same vein as like their they have such a huge influence over the art style. Yeah. And with. Shinkai, the big thing I think that distinguishes him is just that control of light and and right. the thing that makes him so visually distinct from other directors is I think his biggest background in image making personally is not in drawing, but is in photography. Yes. Like a huge amount of the material in his films is based on photographs he takes, which is mm-hmm. why I think in a large and I think that's a big part of why his understanding of light is so vast and so much better than most animation directors because he works with it so tangibly and in such a volumetric way yeah anyway i should save some of this for (laughs) our inevitable someday makoto shinkai episode i don't know let's brainstorm later yeah anyway another quote i think that's really great is 
um, him again talking about storyboards and advocating for them. This is how he explains. We still need to draw storyboards. We've really got something we want to express. We've been really busy drawing pictures at the conceptualization stage. So how can we possibly relinquish the most enjoyable part of making a cartoon movie? For him, like storyboarding is the essence. Right. So it's really important like that. Like, why would he write a script? You yeah. know what I mean? And it's so clear that like, it, it, I mean, it makes so much sense that like he does manga, right? Yeah, exactly. The other kind of thing I wanted to talk about briefly was how some live action films have used similar techniques. One that me and Will talked about that really comes to mind is the latest Mad Max film, Fury Road, because that film, again, super inspiring to me. That's an action film, if you don't know. But yeah, apparently that film originally didn't have any sort of written script at all. They did everything based on storyboards. When they were asking for financial backing from Warner Brothers, they were like, oh, send us a script. And then George Miller was like, oh, no, no, like we we don't have one. Like we have like storyboards lining the like multiple rooms of our office. And that is a script like like you would walk through the office to read the script by by <laughs> looking at these storyboards that were just like lined all along the walls, which sounds super cool. Yeah. And then Warner Brothers responded like, we have like institutional policy that we cannot approve a film's budget without a script. So apparently they just like jammed out a script overnight <laughs> and then like threw it away. And then like Warner Brothers said, this looks great. And they were like, great. And then they threw away the script and never looked at it again. Worked off the storyboards. Yeah. Which totally I mean, they had, to, they, they had to have written dialogue at some point. But yeah, that's another thing we kind of didn't talk about. It's like Miyazaki writes dialogue, but it's uh, it's kind of like there's a storyboard and then just on the side, he just writes in small fit, font like they'll say something like this. but Fury Road was like very different from Miyazaki like that film did not enter production and would never have entered production without being worked out to a T that film is very close I mean there's some scenes not in the film and I think a a handful of shots that were not used that were originally storyboarded but overwhelmingly that film is so cleanly worked out and the structure of it is so dense and perfect and (laughs) Breaking new ground here, complimenting Fury Road. Well, it's one of those films where it totally makes sense that it was a storyboard, though, because I can't even imagine what a script for that, like that, you, you would have lack so much of the the knowledge you need to go into production. Like the storyboard is just such a clear way for the crew and production and everyone to be able to work off of. You On know? a certain level. For the actors, it was really hard, apparently. I'm sure, but like, who cares about them? I'm a cinematographer. (laughs) (laughs) I promise you I'm nice to my actors. I just, I just. (laughs) It does, it does show, I I, I know that, I know you're kidding around. I, I, it does, I mean, you do get at like, this does show a difference between how different ways of preparing your movie and showing it to people work for different people. And the, the traditional written script is just the compromise that especially Hollywood arrived at. It's after. just one way of doing it. That's the thing. Yeah. It's, and it became the standard because of the standardization of production. But, you know, that was one of the things I loved about going to film school was I took a screenwriting course and my prof literally said, you can write your 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 script, quote unquote, any way you want. He, you know, we'd already done the fundamentals like with one prof where they taught us like how to do it quote-unquote properly yeah here's the margins you you said here's how dialogue is formatted here's Here's how sound effects are yeah this is how you do that if you want to do it that way and then the second level course was okay throw that all out the window and do whatever makes sense for your movies if you want to do it that way then like go for it yeah and it was really great for me because 
most of my movies, it's just weird to write a script. Like basically, yeah. like I had the same thing that the Fury Road folks did and George Miller did where I had a very clear vision of what I wanted for my, I talked about this in the last episode too, my, my film watching us. And, um, but I needed to get it cast. And when you are asking for actors to come in, even though the film doesn't have lines, like they need some sort of like basis of like who my character is, what am I doing? Yeah. Da, 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 da. So I wrote a script just for them basically. Yeah. Um, so that it, it made sense to them. But for yeah. me as a director and, for me as you know it's so small scale i could just directly tell my cast and my crew this is what we're doing mm-hmm. it i i you know it just made more sense to work with drawings yeah thanks paige it's fun to just get to chat a little bit about a weird way that a really great director makes movies differently than other people totally and i just um I really wanted to talk about this because I'm a huge fan of his work in general and i've mm-hmm. loved him like i said since i was a kid um, I really advocate for people to show these movies if they have young people in their lives um, and also to watch them themselves. I, I honestly think if you haven't seen this kind of cinema before, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people have that have watched the podcast, but if you haven't seen this type of cinema before, it can really be beautiful. It, it's a unique kind of beauty. Like I, I tear up thinking about how beautiful some of these movies are. And yeah, I I also would say like all these films are now available on Netflix, um, except for The Wind Rises, I think, which is going to come out later this month. Um, so they're really accessible right now. That's partly why I wanted to do this episode. And if not on Netflix, they're really popular films. You can probably get them really easily at your libraries. Um, and I really advocate you listen to them in Japanese if possible. Um, you know, if you have young kids in your life, totally put the dub on get them watching them but that, that's what I did as a kid when I was really young I, I couldn't read it fast enough yet so I was watching the dubs but really advocate for the Japanese it's really good quality acting in there for the Japanese and yeah go watch the movies please 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 and then tell us what you think sounds good thank you Paige Smith our associate producer frequently mentioned at the end of the episode but here <laughs> present and accounted for throughout thanks for listening to us I hope you had fun and I had lots of fun talking about my favorite movies <laughs> Hey folks, I say it every episode, but I really mean it every time. If you enjoyed the podcast today, go ahead on your favorite podcast service, subscribe to it, rate it and review it, and that will really help other people discover it. You can get in touch with us by email via filmformally at gmail.com or find us on social media on Twitter or Facebook at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Bye! Basically, all of his shorts only play at Studio Ghibli, the museum. There is no, like, public distribution of them. I really want to watch Boro the Caterpillar someday. Is that one of his shorts? Yeah. It, it, it was the one he was making after The Wind Rises. All this is getting cut. After he finished The Wind Rises and there was all the to-do about him retiring from features, he was still going to make shorts, and so he was making Boro the Caterpillar. Initial reports were that, like, oh, Miyazaki's starring a new film and the initial por- reports were mixed up where it was like oh borrow the caterpillar is a feature film now <laughs> <laughs> like what borrow the caterpillar borrow the caterpillar <laughs> really